Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, the host of this channel, and today we'll be talking to Elizabeth Bernstein, the author of Brokered Subjects, Sex, Trafficking, and the Politics of Freedom from the University of Chicago Press. Um, So hi, Elizabeth. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to be here. That's wonderful. This is very exciting. I gotta tell you, it's so much fun to talk to people about their work. Um, in this really kind of it's you know academic but informal way. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so how about you? Uh Brokered Subjects uh is your newest work. So uh how did you like tell me about yourself and how you came to it? Yeah, um sure. So I um so you may know I have a book before this on a related topic called Temporarily Yours, Intimacy, Authenticity, and the Commerce of Sex. So this book is in some ways a, um, a little bit of a follow-up to the first book that I wrote, um, which uh, was written uh, in the late 1990s and early 2000s about um, sexual commerce and globalization. And uh, in the earlier book, I was looking at transformations in sexual commerce uh, in three cities, San Francisco, Amsterdam, and Stockholm. And I was interested um, both in the changing dynamics of sex work and in the changing legal regimes that were emerging uh, in different contexts, uh, globally, really, but I was focusing um, on three what I call post-industrial cities in the U.S. Uh, and Western Europe, three cities that were sort of relatively similar in certain ways, but were changing their laws in opposite directions. Um, and in the sort of, I'm calling temporarily, or is now the prequel book, because it um was sort of looking both at the phenomenon and sort of at the emergence of um, burgeoning attention to this issue of sexual commerce, um, not for the first time historically, certainly there have been other historical moments um, where it had also occupied central stage politically, but there was gathering attention again. Um, and um, in the earlier book, I also began to, um, just in the preface and in the conclusion, was writing. I began to write about something that was emerging at the tail end of my research process, um, around the year 2000, which was this new resurgent discourse of sex trafficking, which had been um, basically a discourse uh, that had been in, in a deep slumber for about 100 years um, since uh, since an earlier, um, what I'll call a, a sort of a panic around white slavery uh, the century prior. And what was beginning to emerge uh, in the early 2000s, really, was a really new attention, new focus to this issue, um, Lots and lots of political actors, you know, not just small cadres of feminists, but everybody was getting, uh, you know, interested and concerned about this, you know, governments, transnational governing bodies, you know, also activists. But, you know, increasingly it was circulating in popular discourse as well. And so um, in some sense, like the first question that propelled my research for this new book was, you know, what's happening? Why is, um, you know, why is this discourse come back um, after it had disappeared? Um, what, uh, what, um, what relevance does it have for the um, for the phenomenon at hand, which I just spent, you know, almost a decade studying. And so, you know, and interestingly, when I was, you know, working with the sex workers who were migrating, many, many migrant sex workers in all these cities, um, 
they themselves were not using the discourse of trafficking. So I actually watched the discourse emerge as I was finishing up the first book and, um, and became quite curious about where it was coming from and what it was doing. Hmm. Okay. And so I, li- I like the idea that this is a, con- a kind of a, uh, a life's work here. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm still young. I mean, there's other directions, but it's, um, it's, a, it's a good chunk of my life. Yeah. 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 It's been a couple of decades already. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I find this very funny in the whole yeah. conversation. Oh, what do you do? Well, sex work. Yeah. In a different way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The academic, you know, intellectual arm of it, but, um, but sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm familiar with this. Yeah. Okay. Okay, So I see, uh, I see how this brought you to your topic. Uh, Where are you now? Uh, uh, academically. Oh, academically. Yeah. Yeah. I'm at uh, Barnard College in Columbia University. So Barnard College is um, uh, a women's college, which is uh, affiliated, but also part of Columbia University. So Columbia University has a number of different colleges which comprise it, Columbia College, Teachers College, etc., Barnard College is a still autonomous women, women's college that is part of that. Um, and so unlike um, Harvard Radcliffe, Brown Pembroke, Pembroke, it never fully merged. So I'm uh, affiliated with both, both institutions, which is nice. And I um, teach in women's gender and sexuality studies and in sociology. So I'm trained as a sociologist. And, um, you know, and that's part of my story, too, in, in terms of answering your prior question of how I got uh, to where I got in, in, um, in pursuing this book and how I came to be interested, really. Um, my interest in the topic of sex work initially was spurred you know, as a very young person by, by reading uh, feminist sexuality debates, the feminist, you know, it came to be known as the feminist sex war. So it was really spurred by um, a set of feminist interests as a very young person. I was fascinated by the debates around sexuality that were taking place um, still in the 90s when I was a student. Um, and then when I started my... Um, graduate training in sociology, um, which was in the Bay Area uh, at UC Berkeley, um, just across the Bay from San Francisco, I um, was developing a whole new set of tools to to think about these questions. And um, as I write about in my earlier book also, uh, you know, there was an element of serendipity because while I was a graduate student there, San Francisco started looking into the possibility of decriminalizing prostitution, which was getting a lot of press. And it seemed like um, a really interesting opportunity for me as a burgeoning sociologist, somebody with long-standing feminist interests um, in, these, in these questions and politics of sex to, um, to see what happens when a city like San Francisco tries to do that and how, um, how it happens, who the players are, what the interests are, what fallout is, what the impact is on the sex workers and so forth. Um, so um, so I think I've, I've taken this question on a little bit of a tangent, but that's how I am, how, how I got where I am and what I'm still trying to do, now I remember my thread, is, um, is you know, merge the sort of, um, uh, you know, my sociological interests and, and my feminist interests and interests in, you know, gender and sexual politics and gender and sexuality. And, um, and one of the... Um, methodological threads that has run through both books as well, you know, is an, is an interest to um, uh, melting, you know, serious engagement with um, theory and politics uh, on the one hand with, um, with, you know, rigorous empirical research on the other, and that's the sociology part, and that's what I've tried to bring um, to both projects. 
Oh, great. Okay. Um, yeah, the, as a feminist and as a feminist scholar, it's really interesting uh, to watch, to see how this debate about por- pornography, prostitution, sex work writ large, and then the conversation about sexual assault yes. has kind of <laughs> developed from yeah. the 80s, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I agree. <laughs> right. It's really, um, and it's a very, very strange moment where living in it, but, uh, you know, as we speak, of course, because um, I would say if I were I'm writing yet another uh, afterward to this book, I would have even more things to say, but, you know, at some point one has to um, finish and move on to the next project. Um, so uh, <laughs> these things are, uh, exactly, yeah, things are, um, things are evolving um, kind of quickly and sort of um, in unexpected ways, I think, as we speak. I mean, on the one hand, there's strong continuities. On the other hand, there's also... Um, some new twists, some new twists and turns. Um, you know, as for your allusion to yeah, to sexual assault just a minute ago, right, which is the, the newest twist in all of this. Um, but um, well, it's it's astounding, you know, um, to think about. There was a period in our lives when it seemed possible to eliminate prostitution or possible to eliminate pornography, and. And now, I mean, pornography is here to stay, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> right, right. Um, I think probably as long as capitalism is, I think that's likely. Um, so, um, so you know, so what to say about that? You know, it seemed possible to eliminate prostitution or pornography. I think that that was um, um, one um, one vision that um, that certain strains of feminism certainly had, and it, you know, it did look like that, right, at the emergence of the feminist sex wars in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, um, and certainly when I was a young person, I was um, also, uh, you know, engaged by that political vision, and when I first went to Sweden and Stockholm, and, you know, and at least in a U.S. context, I know it's different in Amsterdam, but when I first went as a young person to, to write that component of the book, you know, everybody would say, you must go to Sweden, you must go to Stockholm. Um, where Utenberg is actually where I started out, but at Utenberg, but um, um, uh, you know, Sweden is, was supposed to be the feminist mecca. <laughs> so, like, if you want to see how things are done well, um, you, you know, you go to Sweden, and every and chapter nine of every feminist sociology book has a chapter on Sweden to see how things could be done better, um, perfectly in feminist ways. And then, you know, I got there, and there was plenty of pornography, and I thought it's not feminist, <laughs> right? Um, um, but you know, but I. I, I you know, in retrospect, I think it was quite young and naive. And so, you know, one of the other threads that I think um, has run through my own intellectual trajectory and um, also sort of courses through these two books, um, uh, you know, and all of the work I intend to do in the future is actually, you know, thinking about um, what's often considered the sort of, you know, micropolitics of the body, the gender, gender and sexuality, and trying to connect those um, to larger sets of political formations, so political economy, geopolitics, um, um, migration flows, um, militarism, um, the rise of the carceral state, and so forth, um, and to see these as actually um, integrally uh, interrelated, and 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 you know with causal causal chains running in both directions, so um, so mutual strains of influence, but rather than rather than separate. And so um, the way I would answer that question now about whether, you know, it's a, um, it makes sense from a feminist perspective to hope that, you know, prostitution or pornography um, don't exist or wouldn't exist. I mean, I think that there could be a lot of other things that would have to change in the world, um, not just around sex, 
um, before those two were not um, prevalent phenomena. Yeah, it's, it's, it really is hard to imagine. Um, and I'm, I'm not certain I want to imagine it, but. <laughs> right, right. Or maybe, but, you know, but, but I think, um, you know, you can't, um, I think to treat these as sort of singular cases, right. And, you know, a late capitalist economy where, you know, everything is commodified and everything is for sale uh, and to expect sex to somehow be exceptional is, is not, it's not realistic. Yeah, absolutely not. And uh, yeah. All right. So uh, tell me just uh, what, what is your overarching argument in this book? What does your book argue? What's your, what does it prove? What is your contribution to the discourse? Yeah. So let me, uh, before I get to specify the argument, let me just um, um, circle back a little bit to the, to specify the question, right? So in, in some sense, yeah, the question that this book is tackling <laughs> raised most colloquially is like, what happened? Why did this discourse come back? And what is it doing? Um, and, um, you know, why is everybody talking about trafficking and sexual slavery again now? And, um, and, um, and what happens? Um, and then, you know, sort of, a you know, at a meta level, the question is, you know, what, um, what are the implications of speaking about sexual violence? Um, in the ways that have become most prevalent and talking about, um, speaking about and addressing sexual violence using, um, you know, what I call in the book, carceral solutions or punitive solutions or punishing solutions. And, um, and then, you know, I would say like an implicit question, um, which is the subtext. I don't think it's too, um, too remote to perceive, but it's, it, it's there as, you know, what might be a better way to think about questions of sexual violence um, in this moment of, neoliberalism, like capitalism, right, et cetera. Um, so th- those are the those are the big questions, right? And so, um, you know, in terms of the answers that I um, try to present to these questions, a couple of things, right? So first of all, you know, you asked about the overarching argument. The overarching, you know, framed most broadly, um, it's a version um, of what um, what I said to you uh, in response to the prior question, right? Which is think that um, in order to answer these questions, you know, we actually need um, to have a bigger frame, a bigger lens, um, and um, look more broadly than most commentators have. So when I set out to write this book, there had been a few critical pieces written about the trafficking discourse, by, uh, but, you know, really smart people like Joe Dozema, uh, who's an art scholar activist, um, and, uh, you know, and a couple of others. And certainly there had been um, a large critical uh, critical feminist and historical literature on the earlier uh, white slave skirt. We could talk more about that um, of the last century. And then there were people who were beginning to write about what was happening now. There had been essays and so forth, mostly saying, um, you know, some people who you know work closely with sex workers saying, like, look, this doesn't describe um, this doesn't describe people's experiences. You know, sex workers, migrant sex workers, even migrant sex workers who've experienced violence don't understand themselves to be trafficked. This framework doesn't work for them. Um, they um, they understand their labor in a different way. They understand the violence they've experienced in a different way. This is not a, a helpful framework. So there had been critiques, and so I was interested. Um, I was interested in these critiques and extending them empirically, and I do um, a lot of that in the book. But I was also interested, and again, here's the sociologist in me, um, in an explanatory piece. You know, the the why question, given that it's not descriptive of people's uh, experiences. It's not. Um, it doesn't feel particularly helpful to sex workers. Um, why is everybody talking about trafficking again? And, um, you know, and not just uh, here, but, you know, but globally and, um, um, and uh, you know, not just activists and state agents, but corporations and, um, 
Google and um, and so on and so forth. And it's um, uh, you know you know for my for my uh, beginning women's study students, everybody's heard of trafficking. Now that wouldn't have been the case 15 years ago, for example, right? And everybody you know when they hear sex work, they think trafficking too. So you know, so what happened? Trying to explain that, um, and then. Uh, you know, as an answer to that, you know, just to, to summarize a fairly complex um, argument, and if you looked at the book, you know, a million footnotes, and, um, you know, it's, um, um, there's a lot there, and it's, uh, it, it's um, you know, the argument is, um, is fairly elaborate, but I, th- I think we can say it in a sort of simple way, which is that, um, you know, there's three, there's, there's three things that I really identify as components of the... Um, the political and economic moment in which we live in that I think are important to understanding uh, the reemergence of this discourse. So the first one I talk about is carceral feminism. I'll say a little bit more about that in a minute. Um, the second is militarized humanitarianism. And the third is what I call redemptive capitalism. Um, and so let me say just a little bit uh, about each of these. And um, what each of these um, phrases or frameworks points to is um, is again this sort of simultaneous transformation of um, what we like to think of as personal or intimate life um, in uh, conjunction with uh, you know broader transformations um, in the political and economic sphere. Um, and what each of these frameworks also points to, right, um, is um, is a sort of I think some weird new ways in which power is working, where it's hard to tell what's progressive and what's conservative, um, what's liberatory and what's restrictive. Uh, what is um, radical and what is reinscribing um, really, uh, you know, I'll just say, you know, kind of re- reactionary dynamics. It's become difficult to tease these things apart, right? And I think, you know, many people are confused in the polit- polit- current political moment and for good reason, right? So let me, let me start with personal feminism, which in a way um, is something I've written the most about. And I've written a couple of articles on this before the book came out. So I've been working on this for a while and it's a kind of, uh, you know, and it's a, I think, a phrase that sort of traveled widely now. A lot of people use this phrase, but um, in different contexts, right, to talk about a lot of things. That I, I was first writing about it in 2007 um, when I started doing this research, and I was um, trying to figure out um, how it was in particular. And one of the things that I look at empirically in the book, um, when we walk through the chapters, I'll talk more about this. Um, you know, the um, alliance between um, mainstream feminists in the context that I was looking at um, and some, you know, very conservative um, political groups, um, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, right-wing uh, political think tanks like the Heritage Foundation, um, the Hudson Institute in Washington, D.C., run by neoconservatives, um, also alliance with um, feminists and very, very conservative Christians, um, and how these kinds of allegiances able to take shape and at a certain point um, in the research um, fairly early on um, I realized that one of the things that was binding these um, just seemingly disparate groups together was not um, you know often feminists are sort of lampoons having puritanical sexual politics and so forth and you know they were just as conservative as Christians and so forth they didn't really think that was the main uh, issue, and I didn't think that that was a fair characterization. But what I did think was happening was that there was an implicit and um, an unspoken allegiance to the carceral state and to punitive mo- models uh, of gender justice that um, that was not made explicit, um, and that um, was in fact binding these groups together, and that everybody uh, was taking for granted that the best 
way to address questions of sexual violence, be it trafficking or domestic violence or rape or um, sexual harassment, etc., was through punishment and um, and penalty, right? And this is um, and and that's how it became clear to me. And so I think then you have to ask, like, how does that become common sense knowledge, right? How um, how is it that feminists are suddenly embracing carceral state, the criminal justice system, the punitive state? Um, that's a real question to ask. And how is it um, that carceral feminism becomes um, common sense taken for granted, uh, knowledge across huge swaths of the population? So the Christians, you know, too, that I spoke with, you know, many identified as feminists, right? They seem progressive in certain ways, right? But everybody um, was interested um, in criminalization and punishment, right? So, you know, for example, one of the Christian organizations that I did uh, ethnographic work with, uh, the International Justice Mission, um, you know, I, I go to their events and I'd be thinking, well, you know, a lot of what they're saying actually sounds pretty feminist and pretty progressive until I began interrogating more and thinking about uh, what's the model of justice here. And in fact, it's criminal justice, right? And so, um, yeah, basically the idea that there's, that you have to, that, the, the, that uh, justice, like policing, prosecuting, this is the only way to do away with gendered violence. Precisely. Yeah. Precisely. Policing, prosecution, um, longer and tougher prison sentences. And, you know, when I see this, um, really everywhere, I mean, you know, I saw it first with this issue, but, you know, if you think about, um, you know, maybe we'll talk more about this later in the conversation, but, you know, some of the um, presumptions behind certain strands, not every strand, but certain strands of Me um, Too and, you know, activism. And I just got back from Spain, where I have a lot of friends, there um, was a you know a sexual assault, and even in the north of Spain, and um, there's a big feminist mobilization now because the perpetrators didn't get enough prison time. And I understand why people are furious about this, and, um, and I understand how um, people can say, "Well, you know, this is sort of the only justice we have." But I think I think we really need to think about that. <laughs> Um, you know, you know, in terms of narrowing the feminist goals, you know, is it you know, feminist victory when we get a long, longer, stiffer prison sentence, or or might there be other um, some some ways action. to imagine? Yeah, yeah feminist action. Right? Some ways yeah. to imagine avoiding. Uh, for, for example, for right? example, you know? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, giving women giving women a different language, uh, a different way to talk about these things. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I feel like we're. we're I, would li- I would like to to step back a second and just talk about um, this. Is your first chapter tracing the traffic in women really? Yeah. Like shows kind of how this how trafficking developed. Kind of the term trafficking. Yeah. I made air quotes. You couldn't see them. Okay, I couldn't see them. But yeah. Wait. Yeah. So. Um... Right. So, so, so let's see. So, and I think what I do in that chapter, right, um, is, um, well, a couple of things, you know, certainly some of the deep historical background that I've alluded to um, a couple of times um, already just in our conversation this afternoon, right? So going back um, to white slavery and um, the white slave traffic, um, uh, you know, in the last century, which, um, um, was a, a really, you know, potent uh, discourse which resulted in, you know, in the U.S. context, the, um, 
you know, basically the, you know, the thorough criminalization of prostitution and driving people out of brothels and onto the streets, again, something I read about in the earlier um, historical section of my earlier book. Um, so that's, you know, an important component of the genealogy. But then looking, you know, more recently, um, at the more recent genealogy as well, and trying to figure out in this next round uh, how it's come back. And um, I'm looking, for example, you know, at some, you know, certainly, um, you know, there was some feminist um, mobilization around this in the mid to late 70s, but it was, I would say, minor, uh, you know, more of a minority discourse and figures like, um, you know, in the sex wars, you know, Kathleen Barry, who had a book on female sexual slavery, although if I can just... Um, um, a detour for a moment. One of the things that's interesting about early second wave feminism um, on these questions when they talk about female sexual slavery, and I actually teach this book sometimes, and students are surprised. My students, you know, try and think of themselves as pro-sex feminists, and then sometimes I, I teach some of the um, so-called anti-sex feminists from this period. And in and, and, um, Barry's book, Female Sexual Slavery, um, from uh, 79, you know, she she's referring to... Um, so not just prostitution, but marriage. <laughs> um, um, you know, so you know the early feminist critique. It was um, more of a critique of normative heterosexuality than prostitution per se. And so one of the interesting things is how, um, for me, I think looking genealogically and historically, is how prostitution then um, gets severed from those other um, those other broader dynamics of heterosexuality to become you know the solo problem, right? Um, I think for uh, you know for for much of you know what was called radical second wave feminism, it wasn't just a critique of prostitution; it was a critique of all of the institutions of heterosexuality, marriage, and the and the nuclear family included. So you know, so this is interesting, and we have to ask how suddenly that critique drops away, um, and the family is not you know even with the current stuff around sexual assault and sexual harassment, nobody's touching the family, for example. Oh, right? no, um, absolutely. Yeah, we've, we've yeah. long abandoned all heterosexist rape, you know. Exactly. Right? Yeah, exactly. So, but, you know, but then, but prostitution remains, um, you know, that's the category that, that um, gets severed off and picked up by all sorts of other um, commentators and political actors, and so that everybody can agree, well, there's the problem, you know, right? And, um, and especially... Um, when migrants are concerned and the main actors. And so then you have to think, well, something else is going on here, right? Um, what else is informing the sexual politics here, right? So um, so I think, you know, in this first chapter on tracing the traffic in women, I'm trying to set some of that up. Um, I'm also trying to show, um, you know, I talk about some of the definitional and calculative flux. You know, one of the things that's interesting is that we, um, lots of people use the term without, um, precisely knowing what they're talking about, there's a way in which it doesn't matter because because um, in a way it's impossible to know. And so one of the things that I trace is the, you know, the reemergence of the term, um, you know, in legal documents like the Trafficking Victims Protection Act and the UN Protocol. And there's, you know, real, uh, a real lack of clarity about what anybody's talking about. And there's lack of agreement. Um, I think, you know, at a political level, it sort of matters less because, you um, because it's about feelings and emotions and affects more than it is about precise definitions. And so it just, it captures, um, I, you know, I think it, it, you know, it, caps, it captures a, um, a sentiment about what is problematic and troubling about, um, about heterosexuality to a lot of people and to a lesser extent capitalism, even though it's not necessarily conscious um, without being, um, you know, and so the, the lack of precision in the term doesn't bother people too much, but it's, you know, I think it's important to know that, um, that, 
you know, in some sense, nobody really knows what it means. Nobody really knows what they're talking about. Not even the legal, um, uh, you know, the the legal commentators and um, and experts who put together these documents, right? That that, that there's you know slippery statistics and sliding definitions. To quote my colleague um, Wendy Chapters, who's also written some nice essays on this, right? Um, so you know, so that's another thing that's important to look at. And a corollary to that is, you know, people always ask, especially you know. When I've talked to sociologists about this, or when I started to, they was like, what are the numbers? How many are we talking about? And because the CIA, initially, when they um, when this issue burst back on the scene um, in the early 2000s, they were saying 50,000 women are trafficked into the United States every year. Now that's um, you know a very it's a large number. It also happens to be the same number that was circulating 100 years ago. Curiously enough, when um, when when people were talking about sex trafficking, right? So you know, so so that's also interesting to think about. You know, where the numbers come from, and so you know, then the U.S. government has kept downgrading their numbers. Well, no, not fifty thousand, maybe seventeen thousand, etc. And so you know, one of the things that I did again, this is the, the empirical you know research side of me, is really looking and trying to figure out how many cases are we actually talking about. You know, also, you know, how do you measure something that nobody has clearly defined? That's another challenge, right? And so um, that's one of the reasons the numbers can slide around. But if I looked at different things that you could measure, well, okay, right, you know, how many T visas have been given to trafficking victims, right? And so, you know, a scant number under 2,000, even though they're, you know, supposed to be 50,000 or 17,000 victims a year, that doesn't sound like a lot. How many cases are there in New York? How many you know, certified trafficking victims or even, you know, cases pursued, you know, it's supposed to be one of the big hubs. You know, there's five cases a year. That doesn't sound like very much, right? So um, so the, the the question of, you know, what it is we're talking about becomes, um, you know, very murky and very interesting and really um, makes it even, I think, more pertinent to think, you know, where does, um, if there's not that many cases, if, you know, comparing to something, for example, like domestic violence, for which there are actually a lot of cases, right? Um, but much more public and political attention to this issue, right? How do we explain that discrepancy? So that's sort of what I'm trying to set up um, in this chapter. And then, you know, the last section in which I talk about um, the club sexual politics and neoliberal freedoms, you know, is sort of trying to um, begin to think about, okay, well, what, you know, what else is going on that can explain um, the um, resurgence, the virtue to this issue if it's not, you know, if it's not just, you know, the sheer number of cases, if it's not, you know, quantitatively, um, you know, as Enormous says, uh, is being claimed by, you know, by a long stretch, right? Um, and, uh, you know, what else, what else might tell us this? And so so then, um, you know, and I lay out some of the method that I'm going to pursue in the book. I call it an ethnography of a discourse, which is, it sounds very technical, um, and, and fancy, but what I really mean is I'm just going to look, um, I'm going to interview people, I'm going to meet the people, um, I'm going to do oral histories with the people who were important uh, in putting and propelling this discourse forward, and I'm, um, I'm going to see why they were so engaged with this issue, right, and, 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 and um, um, at, you know, and why this became the issue, and um, what's motivating them, and how, um, and then how their engagement with the discourse in turn um, shapes the phenomenon itself. And so, of course, one of your answers, like one of the one of the options, um, a really convincing, your convincing chapter too, is about the carceral feminism. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So, so you know. So you know. And so I think there. You know. Uh, you know. That's one of the places we have to start. Um, 
it's really, you know, what, what happened with feminism, right? And, um, and so one of the things that I did was I actually, um, I, you know, I interviewed a number of the, number of the people who were active in the, you know, the original sex wars, right? Um, the, um, and who, you know, some of the very same people, you know, then found themselves um, working, for example, in the Bush White House, um, curiously enough, you know, like Laura Later, right, um, um, who had written a very important book, um, one of the foundational texts of um, Take Back the Night, right? you know, which, which, um, a second wave feminism, you know, who was then a senior advisor to George Bush on trafficking. How does that happen, right? And so, it boggles. Um, it's like, right, it's mind right. boggles. <laughs> it's boggling, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, right? You know, we're sitting at an event on the, you know, the Hudson Institute with some very, you know, these are not, they're, they're not necessarily household names, but for people who follow the, um, the conservative right in America, um, these would be names that would be known, like Michael Horowitz, and, you know, who's sort of organizing forums and putting coalitions together, and how how feminism, uh, you know, gets gets mixed up in this, and um, and that's what I was trying to trace, and so um, by looking, at, you know, at the, um, the, the the feminist piece of this, the feminists who had... Um, Oriented their careers or reoriented their um, their commitments from things like pornography, right, um, to prostitution, to then trafficking, and how the trafficking, um, you know, embracing trafficking actually became a, a you know a route um, to national and international prominence, um, and um, um, yeah, and to um, uh, you know to policy success that they um, would not necessarily. Had had otherwise, um, I think, and 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 there were people who spoke um, explicitly about this. That you know, basically, they were um, they were losing the sex wars domestically until the international train came in, until the global train came in, until the trafficking discourse came in. Um, arguments that were harder to make um, about sex work and prostitution um, when the um, the imagined sex worker was um, was a, a white person from the U.S., for example speak about you know u.s context um versus uh versus uh, you know and now i'm going to use the scare, scare quotes that you you know you and your listeners can't see but believe me they're there at the end of the third world prostitute right you know the um um and then and how she could be, become a symbol of exploitation um and oppression that was um um uh, you know, much more galvanizing. Right. One of the questions yeah. um, that I had here is just how much this is about, then we don't have to, how much we are then relieved of the, our, how much, like, we don't have to talk about agency, right? Because the third world prostitute has none. And so we can just, we have a clear victim, which means we can have a clear perpetrator. Right, right. Um, I think that's really, really true. Um, and, uh, you know, and, then, and race is part of that story. So the politics of race become very important, you know, and this is something that I think, um, you know, earlier waves of feminism or, you know, critical commentary didn't necessarily always pay enough attention to, right? You know, this is one of these intersections, these macro intersections, the politics of race, a nation that's extremely important. You're exactly right. Yeah. So, um, so the third world prostitute is presumed to have no agency. She's just a victim. And conversely, um, as you just noted, right, um, you know, whatever um, facilitators, mediators uh, that, um, that she's working with um, can be very, very easily demonized, right, some men of color. And this, you know, this two-prong, um, the two prongs of this are both really important, right? You need the perpetrator, you need the ideal perpetrator and the ideal victim for the discourse to work. Right. 
Okay, great. Yeah, this was a, a very convincing. It was a this. I loved this chapter. I actually, I really enjoyed your whole book, by the way. Um, Thank you. But this chapter just really spoke. Um, I'm actually, I'm just putting together kind of the module we're going to do this fall on sex work. And oh, great. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Super. Yeah. All right. Um, so chapter three has my favorite title though, which is okay. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> See, absolutely. He right, right. got this trademark. Um, I know, right? Great. Tell me how. Well, how did that happen? Well, so this, um, you know, this basically, um, uh, this is from the international justice system. This is their, this is their motif. Now, I think it's their academic use to to borrow it for an academic analysis. So you know, so I do. I think we're okay in terms of that, but, you know, but, 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 you know, what it captured, it captures a number of things that are condensed in the Seek Justice TM. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it captures this really complex melding that we were talking about earlier, right? So progressive ambition, seek justice, that sounds good, right? Um, right? But what else is happening um, that TM, what's that trademark? Oh my goodness. This is also, you know, this is a corporate capitalist effort at the same time, right? Right? Um, so no, you know that's what they use, and so what is this? What what? How 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 bizarre, right? <laughs> you know that, right? That um, it, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot that's contained in that juxtaposition, right? That it's you know, seeking justice is compatible, and you can patent it, and it's um, and that it is you know that corporate capitalism and neoliberalism are not the enemies of uh, the version of this just this version of justice that's being propounded here, right? Um, and then the last thing. And then, you know, the seeking part. So that's um, um, this is the evangelical Christian language. So that's how you know it's um, a Christian part, right? Um, and then it's interesting to think, to um, to go down to the little, um, you know, quotes I have beneath it to see, well, what is this model um, of justice that they have in mind? And so, um, you, you know, so I begin with this quote from Isaiah, seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. And this is from the, the website of the International Justice Mission. By the way, if I haven't mentioned this already, this is one of the largest evangelical uh, Christian anti-trafficking um, organizations in the world. And they have operations in, you know, 14 countries and 87, or, you know, full-time staff, 87 last time I checked, I'm not sure how many now. Uh, so they're an important organization, which is why I, I focused on them. Um, and um, and it was uh, you know interesting as an ethnographer as a sociologist to try and figure out what was happening here. I hadn't um, done work so much you know with evangelical Christian groups before, um, so this was um, in that sense it was a sort of new domain for me. But I was just trying to I was um, trying to make my best effort to figure out what was going on and and trying to sort of tease apart what they um, what they meant by justice, right? And so then that becomes clearer in the other. Uh, Quotes that I um, I feature in the beginning of this chapter from um, Gary Hagen, um, the director um, and um, and the CEO, as he calls himself, of the IJM. The trafficking is not a poverty issue; it's a law enforcement issue, right? Um, and then the third one, you know, we're seeking a business takeover, a freedom business takeover of the sex business from Gary Holton um, of a, a, an evangelical Christian social entrepreneurship um, or business of mission group, as they call it. Um, so, and you know, so I want to say this. Actually, it was actually at a, um, an event um, sponsored by IJM where I was trying to, you know, figure this out in my head and, you know, the, you know, again, sort of trying to sort of puzzle through this dilemma where everybody seemed um, 
you know, surprisingly progressive to me because when I when I began this research and I didn't know it very much about evangelical Christians, I just assumed that they'd be um, the you know the church ladies that they'd been you know parodied as being and demonized as being. I think they were young people with hip haircuts who seemed really sincere and. You know, I talked to them, and they would say, you know, that they were the black sheep in their family because they were, um, you know, they thought of themselves as progressive. Some of them were supporting Obama, for example. And um, I was trying to figure out these were not the evangelical Christians I, I expected to meet um, when I started doing this project. But yet there was something that didn't jive with my version of progressivism, and I kept trying to figure out what it was. And as and then I realized, you know, as I um, that that every time justice was invoked, it was it wasn't what I meant by justice. It was a different version of justice. And then seeing it there, actually saw it with the Christians first. I was able to take it back to the feminist field, just in terms of my own thought process, and see, oh, you know, this is this is also true for the for the feminists with that that I disagree with. Right? It's not it's not so much their analysis of sex. It's actually their analysis of justice that's um, you know problematic. Sure. Uh, and how you get it, right? I'm, I'm, I'm still unclear on how buying the t-shirt <laughs> frees women. I'm just, but. Yeah. Right. So, um, you know, so I think you're uh, referencing the not for sale freedoms. <laughs> yeah. A bunch of, hold your head around. Um, but, um, right. And so this is, you know, now we're, 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 um, we're, um, Prefiguring my analysis of um, redemptive capitalism here, but yeah, how does buying the t-shirt help? Right, and so we can ask it of them, right? Because it became very glaring because there's something like um, they had this big not for sale freedom store, and you know, right, um, where they sold products that were supposed to help trafficking victims. And so you know, you can we can see it. You know, sometimes um, like one of the things I like about sociology is they sometimes say it's the study of making the strange familiar and the familiar strange, right? So I started by making the strange familiar, and then making the strange familiar and helped me to make the familiar strange, right? Because um, the evangelical Christian world was new to me. And so it was strange. And then by trying to make it familiar and like understand, well, like how does this t-shirt bring justice? I could say, well, you know what? They're not the only ones doing this. Like, you know, Dan and yogurt in the grocery store has like a pink ribbon on the top and you buy that or you buy like um, Tom's shoes or, um, you know, other, you know, buy this and we'll donate to that and, you know, eating for good and, you know, everything, you know, we're all, you know, a lot of us engaged in um, consumer capitalist practices that we're convinced are, you know, by eating more, buying more, spending more, we're saving the planet. You know what I think? Like, right? um, so, um, you know, so that being said, you know, in terms of the t-shirt specifically, you know, the, um, the claim uh, here, um, uh, was that, you know, and there's many, many organizations that do this kind of thing um, in the evangelical world. So, you know, either the proceeds go to help, uh, you know, what they consider a, a good anti-trafficking organization, or, you know, you're buying products that were made by rescue trafficking victims, like, you know, earrings or bags or um, uh, et cetera. And so, you know, so that was the claim. I actually had... Um, when I was writing this book, I had a graduate student, Elena Shee, who's now a professor at, um, at Brown University, writing her own book on this. She actually did a study of the um, evangelical Christian uh, rescue projects where they, you know, rescue projects, quotes, where they're uh, making jewelry and, um, and so forth, and actually looking at the conditions in those projects. And I, uh, you know, her, her work is very important for me 
great. It's going to come out soon as well. Um, you know, you know, so, you know, so one, and one of the things she talks about, we talk about here and we actually, you know, co-wrote one of the chapters in this book is that, um, uh, you know, these rescue projects are not rescue projects. So the way that you might think of them, right. So they are, um, they, um, they're, you know, former sex workers are working there, but, you know, for a variety of reasons, not because they feel rescued, but because they're older and um, have retired from other possibilities, and this is the next best way to make some money, right? Um, but, uh, you know, that's certainly not how it is um, packaged by the Christian groups, right, um, when they're um, when they're telling you to buy for freedom, et cetera, um, or by, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more in a few minutes, you know, or by corporations like the Body Shop that basically promise the same thing, you know, uh, their soft hand stop sex trafficking campaign where you buy a hand lotion and somehow you're um, stopping sex trafficking, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a, it's a stretch. It's a, it's a really cr- creative. <laughs> yeah, why don't we, let's move on to the chapter four then, the travels of trafficking. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So this was, um, again, so Elena and I wrote this tra- chapter together. Um, we, um, one of the things that was, as she was doing her dissertation, dissertation research, and I was um, doing my research for this book, um, we, um, we jointly became interested um, in these, um, uh, these uh, reality tours that we saw cropping up um, uh, around trafficking um, and sponsored by, you know, organizations with pretty good pedigrees like Global Exchange, right? Um, pretty good progressive pedigrees, you know, so, you know, that we're offering reality tours of trafficking. They weren't the only organization we actually um, were initially going to do it for. It was a different organization that fell through because of flooding. So we decided to do this one in the end because this one, um, well, it's Global Exchange, which is, you know, very prominent um, secular progressive group. And they were partnering um, was not for sale, which was, uh, you know, which is basically um, a de facto evangelical group. And, you know, and, and for me, this was interesting because this was a political um, linkage that I was already um, looking at and interested in. And Elena, as I mentioned, had already been in Thailand looking at these Christian jewelry projects. So she wanted to go back and see um, what, uh, you know, what a, what a reality tour <laughs> um, would feature and how they would present it. And so, you know, so we decided to make a reality tour or ethnographic object or sociological object and to study the tour itself, right? You know, to treat that as the thing that we wanted to understand. Um, and so um, so we went on this tour together um, to, uh, to Thailand, um, to uh, Bangkok, uh, Chiang Mai and Chiang Rai, um, following the tour and studying the tour itself. Um, as a way of you know seeing a couple of things you know so um so seeing you know what happens when um these u.s organizations sort of um you know exercise a kind of soft imperialism going uh, you know going around the world bringing uh, you know u.s uh anti-trafficking models discourses you know to another context uh you know we certainly wanted to see that i'd already um i'd spent some time in Thailand with sex workers while I was working on my, my earlier book, Temporary Wars. So I knew a lot of the activists there already. I knew a lot of the organizations. Um, Elena was just beginning to meet them. So, we, you know, we also thought it would be interesting um, if to juxtapose, you know, what the tour was showing with what um, the sex worker activists were saying at the same time. So that's, you know, a lot of what structures this chapter and is very interesting. So, you know, groups like Empower, especially Empower Chiang Mai, um, you know, how they regarded the tour, how they regarded the phenomenon. They, you know, they're, they're really 
um, local experts. I think they're a terrific organization. They know a lot. So that was, you know, another one of the things um, that we were trying to see. And then also what was motivating. You know, I think, you know, the thing that's hard about this topic for a lot of people sometimes, um, you know, my students is they want to, you know, they they have good intentions, right? As, you know, as did a lot of the people who signed up for this tour. I mean, it's not that people, you know, are in a bad place in their hearts. But, you know, what were they doing? What were they thinking? Why would you sign up for a tour like this? And so, um, you know, so, you know, so, you know, looking broadly, you know, certainly, again, I'm interested in the macro and the micro connections. You know, this is not um, a unitary phenomenon. Now, the fact that it's about sex uh, is not an important, it is important. And we, we talk about, you know, the role that sex plays and how um, sex makes the tour work in a sense. You know, but it's also part of broader phenomena like slum tourism and mind tourism and so forth. And, you know, and if we step back and think, this is kind of weird right what people do now right that you know wealthy westerners you know pay a lot of money to mm-hmm. go see atrocities in other places sure. right yeah um, like, and but that is a you know a tourist pastime yeah, family right? tourism is you know we're yeah. kind of in the midst of it here we see a lot of but we also see a lot of like sex tourism obviously in amsterdam but yeah absolutely yeah and, you know and, and in a way this is sort of mediates between all of those things this also we decided was a kind of sex tourism of its own, right? And I think, you know, one of the arguments, one of the broader arguments of the book, um, this is, you know, later in the book where I talk about the place of sex, um, um, you know, so I say, you know, it's not just about sex, you know, in general, but um, but sex is really, the fact that it is about sex is really important because sex um, enables, you know, a lot of other, you know, omissions, elisions, you know, sloppy thinking um, to happen because people get focused on the sex and stop thinking in a sense, right? And so they start feeling and stop thinking, right? And so, um, yeah, and so, and you know, even if you're condemning it, even if you're fighting trafficking, in a way, it's, you know, it's a way of engaging with sex that feels moral, that feels political. That sure. Just, uh, yeah, um, you can engage, um, you're still, but, you have all this prurient interest in the sex exactly. trade. Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah, and you know yeah. we're the, the, we're from a country, the U.S., that's obsessed with sex and yeah. sexual violence. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Good Lord. Right. How and many I, SVUs are yeah, there? You know, how many anyway. SVUs <laughs> must we have? Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. And that, and that's not you know, and I think that the obsession with sexual violence, you know, is not distinct from, you know, the broader problems with sex that, you know, that we have in the U.S., right? Because it becomes one of the, um, a few legitimate venues we're talking about. Yeah, sure. Right. Right. um, And one of those places where you can reaffirm your credentials as a feminist or a Christian or, you know, just a generally good moral person. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, this, this was fascinating. I um, am completely interested and I can't decide if I want to go or if I'm horrified or <laughs> what. Oh my God, I'm not a reality for it. It's horrifying, right? You know, it's, um, you know, it's, you know, it's also it's a, one of the things that I think, um, you know, stands out, you know, for some people about this chapter is just, you know, how you, it's, you know, called a reality tour, you know, if there's not that much trafficking, what do you show tourists then, right? And so, like, what, you know, because that's the whole point. It's supposed to be, like, you know, uh, you know, a show and tell, you know, so see it with your own eyes, but but there isn't really very much trafficking in Thailand anymore, so yeah. what do you do? And so, <laughs> right? as real as reality television. Yeah, I exactly. Know. So, you know, and so, yeah, so here's where, 
some of the illusions. Um, and here's where the, the sex helps, right? Because, you know, so people get sort of primed to see things in particular ways as we talk about, you know, so, you know any um, young um, Thai women on the street, you know, dressed in sort of flimsy summer clothing could become evident, you know, oh, maybe that's a trafficking victim, you know, and so... Um, yeah. She might be a problem there. I think I saw one, you know, et cetera, or just going, you know, into a, a bar or a club at night where, uh, you know, people were working. That becomes evidence of trafficking. And, um, you know, poverty becomes evidence of trafficking, you know, any kind of um, any kind of sexual commerce, even though, you know, the, you know, the, the, the you know, bars in the red light districts, you know, there's, a, you know, a bunch of other kinds of tourist-oriented commerce, you know, everybody, you know, people with some of the tourists, you know, even on our own um, reality tour, we, you know, sit on the streets and, you know, have four women give them a foot massage for a very, you know, for for, um, for very, uh, you know, small sums, um, you know, without necessarily connecting that to the, um, the sexual commerce, which they found much more disturbing, but which, by the way, is much more highly paid. Right? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's, yeah, that's yeah. fascinating too. Yeah. The, and the linkage between the like Orientalism and kind of self, what we call self-care. Is something exactly. Think about. Exactly. Ooh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, now I have to think about that. Think. Yeah. Next time I go for a massage. All right. Uh, yeah, indeed. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So let's talk about redemptive capitalism. We're, we're yeah, kind of all of yeah. all roads have been leading us here, right? We have been getting there exactly, right? And so, you know, again, this was something um, that um, you know, I have with each of these chapters. You know, I have like a theoretical concept and an empirical focus. So, of course, with feminism, I focus on the you know the you know particular feminist groups, and with the um, militarized humanitarianism, I focus on Christian groups with redemptive capitalism, I focus explicitly on the corporations, but um, but but all of these um, um, phenomenon sort of thread through all of the groups, right, and all of the participants. Um, I, but I became, you know, particularly fascinated because um, what I was beginning to notice towards the end of my research process, you know, was um, how explicitly all these large corporations um, were engaging with this issue and taking it on, and that really seemed bizarre to me because, um, you know, again, looking at the various genealogies um, of the trafficking discourse, you know, you know, you and I have talked already about the feminist, um, the feminist path there, but, but never mind, you know, in a way less direct, but also there was the anti-globalization activism in the 1990s um, that was very important. Um, but where did that critique go? Because in the, in the, in the 90s, you know, in the critiques of, you know, places like, um, you know, in you know, Battle for Seattle and so forth, corporations were the enemy, right? And so um, they were part of the problem in terms of um, in terms of where all this came from. And how is it now that you know corporations like Google and Manpower um, were presenting themselves as the solution? And so, um, and you know, I became aware of this through their own um, pretty um, explicit campaigns, but also you know they were funding a lot of the other groups, right? So a lot of the anti-trafficking organizations that were emerging and there seemed to be more every day. I would look and ask who their funders are and a lot of they had corporate funders. So I became interested in that as well. Um, and they, you know, they were starting to sponsor events and there were these MTV exit campaigns all across, you know, um, Southeast Asia, the body shop in New York had, 
you know, poster for that trafficking, was sponsoring petitions. Um, and so I was seeing more and more of this. And then as I was also going to political events in Washington, D.C. around this and meeting with policymakers, so maybe there'd be somebody from Google at the table, right? Or from Manpower. What were they doing there, right? Wait a minute, you know? And um, and it was interesting. Mark Lagon, who um, was a, a very um, interesting, interesting figure um, in the sort of tail end of the, the Bush administration, you know, he was, um, his, I, I think he was very, very interesting man. And he, you know, his explicit idea was to um, have, corporations um, be at the forefront of this issue and to sort of forge um, public-private partnerships or private-private partnerships, even called it around this issue, and, you know, to basically um, have the anti-trafficking movement be corporate-led, which is so interesting and bizarre because um, because a part of the problem is supposed to be, uh, you know, um, capitalism and economic exploitation, and if that's the reason people are economically suffering and migrating, um, how are corporations supposed to help? So, um, so, so that became the sort of research question that, that guided this chapter. And, you know, and so I sort of began by just sort of first documenting the extent of it and the rise of all these apps and the industries that I was most interested in that were working on this were the tech industry and the temporary labor industry, um, who seemed to be some of the, the biggest players. And so again, there were all kinds of corporations who were working on this also, you know, from Carlisle Hotels and hotel industry, putting a lot of money into this. Um, and so this became another really interesting research journey for me. Um, again, I didn't know a lot about evangelical Christians when I started writing this book, but I certainly hadn't done any ethnographic research um, with corporate social responsibility boards before um, and uh, before this project. And um, but it, it led me there. And I um, became interested in what kinds of issues corporations invest in and why and how they choose them and what they're hoping to accomplish, right? So I did, um, you know, interviews and participated at Google events and Silicon Valley events because the tech industry was so uh, big in this and, um, and interviews with, um, with uh, executives from uh, groups like LexisNexis and Manpower who were becoming um, more and more prominent. And, um, and so this is sort of what led me to this no- notion of, um, redemptive capitalism, you know, I think it's, um, you know, what does it mean? What does redemptive capitalism mean? You know, it, it, um, it's an interesting phrase, which, you know, I think tries to capture a couple of things, but what, I, what I'm most trying to get at here is how capitalists themselves um, are trying to redeem their um, own role in, you know, in, in fomenting poverty and inequality and gender exploitation and so forth. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, and I think, you know, as with the tourists we were talking about earlier, I think a lot of these people are well-intentioned, but, you know, there's contradiction here. <laughs> um, nobody wants to face that on, right? And so, um, so if you ask, you know, why an organization like Manpower, which is the largest temporary labor um, organization in the world, one of the largest private sector uh, employers in the United States, um, you know, is getting inter- interested in this issue, you have to think, okay, what, um, and some of the some of the um, people in this in this field would say so directly. Well, it has to work in terms of the economic interests in the com- of the company, right? If you're going to take on an issue, um, it has to be business people will say this directly, right? You know, and how does it work for us? You know, and so you know, I have the um, I have have some of the visuals from the end human trafficking now campaign, right? Ending human trafficking is smart business, right? I mean, they would say this directly. If it's temporary labor. What is this? You know, people get paid by the piece, very little. They have no benefits, right? Um, you know, these are 
very lousy jobs that are more and more prevalent um, at this moment of post-industrial economies. People migrate for these jobs. They also do um, organizations like Manpower and other companies. They also um, do brokered labor arrangements, right? This is part of where the title of the book comes from, thinking about you know the brokering um, brokering of many kinds of subjects and many kinds of labor. So, you know, so migrant workers, um, uh, you know, moving from place to place, for example, you know, from China to the Philippines, you know, will often have to work before they get paid, right? Um, they um, will have to lay out money at the outset. They will have very little control over their labor. They'll be shuttled around without what's, knowing what's going on. Things that sound a lot um, and can even feel a lot like what we call trafficking, right? Um And this is just legitimate corporate practice. Absolutely. But like, let's put that fine a point on it, right? We have women who are working as like independent contractors for themselves, or perhaps we can get them to make these earrings we'll sell. Yeah, I mean, let, let's be clear on exactly what redemptive capitalism looks like, which you you are, although you're not. I mean, you, you're very clear on this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. So you know, so I, and what I hear, um, and and uh, what you just said is just you know, what does redemption consist of, right? So how you know, what, what do they imagine is redeeming about capitalism, right? You know, why is making earrings more redemptive? more redemptive than um, selling your own sexual labor, for example, right? And here's, you know, here's, um, you know, here's the sex piece again, right? And so, um, and they, you know, and I think this is, uh, this is another way to think about the importance of sex, um, circling back to, to an earlier moment in our conversation, right? It's not just pro-sex, anti-sex. It's not just puritanism or sexual freedom. Um, it's the other work that sex does. So one of the ways... Um, in which it's, um, I think it becomes not just like politically, but also economically important to demonize sex, the sale of sex, is because then by contrast, all other forms of commerce um, look moral, right? So at least sex is not being sold, right? So, you know, if sex is on the bad side of the line, right, then everything else can be on the good side of the line, right? At least, at least they don't have to sell their bodies and they don't have to sell sex, right? Becomes the argument, right? So that's why selling earrings, you know, making earrings, um, for less money, for more hours, with less control over your movements and who you see, um, with less control over your labor, um, can look like freedom and reduction. Sure. Right. You know, uh, yeah, this is a, a longstanding conversation I have with anti uh, like people who are really opposed to the sex trade. It's like, draw the line for me between waiting tables and prostitution, you know, like where, where do you, I mean, there's, there's a couple clear places, right? But uh, one of these, one of these makes a lot more money than the other. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah, right. Indeed. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, that, that's right. Yeah. And so I think then, and so this is why, you know, it's so, so, you know, so why, why, why does it become so important? I think um, this was something I really hadn't um, thought about in this way before writing this book because I figured things out while I'm writing. But, you know, I've thought about sexual politics for a long time, right? Yeah, you know, so I've been thinking about, you know, sort of, you know, as I was saying earlier, you know, what are the broader politics that influence sexual politics? But conversely, right, what does sexual politics do for everything else, right? So if sex is the bad thing, if sex is the true moral wrong, that makes everything else legitimate. We don't need to criticize it. So you can have seek justice TM and capitalism can look good and we don't have to criticize that or we don't have to criminalize 
we don't have to criticize the criminal justice system, system or the carceral state or securitized borders, right? If the real, if we now we've isolated and located what the problem is, and it's just sex, then everything else looks, you know, relatively benign by comparison. All right. Yeah. Perfect. Oh, it's so it's so easy. All right. Let's. Yeah. Let's wrap okay. this up. I've taken up so much of your time, but I've sure. had such a great conversation with you. I don't. I'm in. A, it's great yeah, talking it's really to you. Um, so let's let's talk about imagining freedom. Ta-da. Okay, great. Yeah, imagining freedom. So one of the um, you know things I try to do in this chapter, um, and I, I try not to. However hard the book or the topic, I, I like to think about, you know, um, what, what, other, what other imaginations of freedom could be, just to, to um, leave us with some hope, which is, I think, important in hard times. Um, so, uh, you know, so here's really where a lot of the sex worker activist voices come in and um, really forge, I think, a dramatic contrast um, with, uh, with the, the implicit imaginations of freedom that are contained in the anti um, a trafficking discourse and by the anti-trafficking activists. And so, you know, so one of the things I try and focus um, on here is what I call, at least, you know, there were new activisms when I wrote this chapter, but they're still relatively new. Um, you know, so not just sex worker activism, which, you know, we've had since um, the 70s and Coyote in San Francisco, and again, something I write about um, in my earlier work. Um, but what, one of the, um, what I was really, what was giving me some hope as I was writing this last chapter were, um, the new forms of both sex worker activism and other kinds of left and progressive activisms that were um, sufficiently inter- intersectional that they could actually um, think about um, sex work in progressive ways, which usually doesn't happen. I mean, so part of, you know, I think one of the challenge for sex, one of the challenges for sex worker activism, well, there are several, but one of them has been, um, you know, also, you know, certain varieties of progressive and left politics have also um, uh, not, you know, been, um, made the mistake of designating sex as a special category and then not interrogating it sufficiently enough. And so, you know, people who are sort of progressive in other ways have not, I think, necessarily thought in progressive ways around sex. They've regarded it as a special case. And so what was um, a special case and a problematic case and sort of accepted the mainstream discourse, you know, so, you know, people like Rachel Maddow or, even, you know, Democracy Now! or um, people who should know better haven't known better, right? And so what was inspiring me as I was writing this chapter is that um, I was finding people who were knowing better and I was seeing some intersections um, that really excited me and seemed um, to have some potential. So, for example, um, you know, when Occupy was having in New York, there was a sex worker rights contingent um, that was, you know, uh, you know, working with Occupy and linking the issues of um, the 2008 financial crisis, um, gender and sexuality politics, and with sex worker rights. And um, I just thought that was terrific, right? I mean, and those were the kinds of meldings um, and connections that needed to be made at an activist level, I thought, to um, to get us through this and to, and to, um, and to put forth another discourse around this. Um, you know, similarly... Um, when the women's march happened, I, you know, there was a lot of, and I talk about this in this chapter, you know, the sort of back and forth and it wasn't a smooth path and there were various, you know, iterations, but in the end, you know, the version of, of the first um, women's march that went forward um, was pro sex worker rights. And that was on the platform. And that was amazing because this was, you know, this was mainstream feminism in the U S and I, I never thought I would sort of see 
um, a mainstream, you know, especially after, you know, all this trafficking stuff um, had uh, reemerged again, you know, really embracing um, sex workers' rights in a profound way, because that, that's going to be necessary, right? If the only way you talk about, you know, either as a feminist or as a progressive person on the left, if the only time you mention sex work is to talk about the horrors of sex trafficking, then you're, you know, you're not helping. Right? You, know, you have to, you have to do something affirmative for sex workers and sex workers' rights, and right. Um, and so it seemed, you know, it seemed like we were seeing some of that, and that. Um, you know, those were the new active in Black Lives Matter too. You know, I mentioned this also in the book. Was you know, this is another you know really important new activism in a U.S. context. You know, had um, just you know great and you know unexpected engagement um, with uh, with the issue of sex workers' rights and anti-criminalization, anti-carcerality. And I know some of the people uh, you know personally worked on this to fold it into the platform. And you know, so these are things that. Um, I was actually finding, uh, you know, some inspiration in, and I still do. Um, I have an afterword to the book also where I'm a little bit more, <laughs> right, you know, which is after Trump's um, Trump selection and, um, you know, which is just a little bit more tentative. And, you know, and then, you know, I think part of what happened with the, um, you know, Hillary Clinton's um, loss of the presidency, because everybody expected her to win, is then, um, you know, then, then there was a kind of, you know, scrambling and a regrouping and, um, you, you know, in some of the, you know, the kinds of feminism, which I find less, less helpful have now, uh, you know, reconstituted themselves again, you know, um, you know, first in what I write about in the afterward is, you know, national security feminism, but then subsequently, and, you know, in some of the strands of me too, that have become ascendant. And, you know, there wasn't, I didn't want to get into a whole other thing in the afterward again, but it's just, it's there in a little footnote in the very last sentence, like, you know, in terms of which feminism is going to be ascendant, um, a lot's going to hinge on that, right? Whether it's these kinds of, you know, you know, you know, deeply and legitimately um, intersectional feminisms that are really thinking about, um, you know, the intersections of um, not just identity categories, but global politics and sexual politics and, you know, vice versa, the effect of sexual politics on global politics, because we need to, we need to read both ways, you know, or, um, you know, or a kind of um, um, more, um, you know, more, <laughs> more narrowly focused, you know, self-involved um, and, um you know, I think deliberately occluding a kind of, um, you know, version of a feminism that doesn't question criminal justice, that doesn't question punishment as, um, as, as the solution that, um, you know, or carcerality or the carceral state or capitalism or anything, you know, that we're seeing, again, in some strains of Me Too. So it's a little less helpful by the time I wrote the afterward, um, because... Um, uh, because that was emerging, you know, and, and you know, in addition to the rise of Donald Trump, so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm still in a, a in ambivalent space about this, but I think, I think that's the crossroads um, at which we sit. Right yeah, now. I, I really in this, you're, you know, the, I'm looking at the final sentence of the book, whether it's this vision of feminism or carceral or carceral feminism, the national security feminism, which is a great term. You know, this is this actually because that will, of course, reflect other trends and will affect other trends. It really. It is an interesting moment in that kind of, you know, old curse way uh, <laughs> in the world right now, isn't it? It, it, it? it is a really interesting moment. It is an interesting moment. In one minute, moment, I feel hopeful, and one moment, I feel despairing. And so I, um, you know, so, and things are changing very quickly, and, you know, and it depends on where you look. And, 
you know, what I try to do when things are um, feeling uh, grim somewhere, I look somewhere else. And so I, um, um, I think, you know, one of your questions for me was, um, you know, what other projects I'm working on. One of the um, books I'm trying to finish up with my colleague, Janet Jacobson, um, we've been part of this project on um, gender and sexuality and, and neoliberalism, or what we're now calling post-neoliberalism, and sort of looking actually at um, 12 different countries together, and we have collaborators in Argentina and Mexico and, um, you know, working in Nigeria and um, Hong Kong and, you know, different parts and India. And so just trying to sort of think about, um, uh, you know, some of these dynamics, you know, as they circulate globally and as they, um, and as they disperse globally too. And so, um, so there's different things going on in different places. I mean, there's some, you know, there's, some continuities and um, and some circulations, which are quite interesting. Like, for example, for that for the the new book we're working on, I, I co-authored a chapter with three other authors looking at the circulations of the trafficking discourse um, between um, between the U.S. and um, and Hong Kong and uh, Argentina and Nigeria. And um, and you know, in that case, there's a lot of continuities. But you know, in other cases, you know, there's there's some just different things happening in different parts of the world that can give us hope sometimes. So, um, so, uh, so, so I'll offer you that. <laughs> Mexico is looking, is looking better now than that. Well, oh, well, all right then. We can, we can take that, carry that ahead with us. That'll be, we're looking good. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, I'm looking forward to, uh, I'm looking forward to more of your work. Um, I am actually teaching a chapter of this book this fall. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah, really Which excited. chapter are you teaching? <laughs> um, I, you know, um, I was thinking, oh, I've been going back and forth, but I think uh, carceral feminism. Right. right. I really think, yeah. And I'll, I'll make everything else available, but we yeah. do, you know, we, we have a, we do sex trafficking or we do like, you know, sex work, sex versus sex trafficking and kind mm-hmm. of like mm-hmm. the why, why is sex so important to this uh, discussion anyway. So that's really exciting. Great. Um, <laughs> all right, Elizabeth, thank you so much. And thank uh, you. all right, take care. Okay. All right. Thanks very much. Okay. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.